Hi, people. Good afternoon. Welcome to part two of our first Hitchcocktober. What are we discussing today? Today we are discussing the movie that you really cannot address Hitchcock without discussing Psycho. That's right. Especially on this, the day of Halloween. Ideally, you'll be hearing this on Halloween. Very fittingly, to my dad. Here's what it comes down to is we have to discuss Psycho if we're going to be discussing Hitchcock. Because this was, after all, his biggest hit film. Uh, despite having, like, little to no advertising budget for it. It didn't really matter. Word of mouth is the most powerful advertiser on Earth, and it worked. But God, the, the campaign he did for it, he, um, like, his ad campaign was basically nobody will be admitted after the start of each showing of Psycho. And also, please don't ruin the twist. Uh, Hitchcock spent his own money to buy up copies of the original source novel, actually. Just to make sure that people didn't realize what was going on. That's true, he did. Before production. Yeah, he, he took some extremes to get this movie, uh, high. If you look at the ad campaigns, it's really very William Castle. A record in the lobby telling people when the, how many minutes until the movie started. The emphasis on the twist, yeah. It's a brilliant move. It was, and it was a fitting move because it was very much the kind of film Hitchcock was making. Mm-hmm. This was an exploitation film. Why not hype it like an exploitation film? I guess the, the ideal place to start would be the film's background, which I honestly admit I don't know a tremendous amount about. Yeah, uh, I only know what I know because of the movie Hitchcock that, just, that recently came out, which... I'm going to assume it's mostly based on fact. It's it's a good movie. See it if you can. Um, it's uh, starring Anthony Hopkins as Hitchcock, which is very hard to play. You know, a very a recognizable figure. So kudos to him on that. He pulled it off. Yeah, basically, it's based on the Ed Gain murders. Like, I forgot exactly what happened, but uh, it involved fratricide and matricide. I think. Uh, yeah, Gein was a sick fellow. Um, his legend has inspired a number of films. Uh, it's in the background of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, majorly. And, of course, uh, Silence of the Lambs took pieces from it, but nowhere near so much that you could say that it drew too much from it. Yeah. I'm looking on Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jesus, wow. Yeah, he, uh, Psycho is toned down from what this guy did. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the real Ed Gein was just a really sick son of a bitch. Wow. So, yeah. It was it was, it was was loosely based on that. I guess I shouldn't draw too much of my history, the actual history of the film, from from another film. But, you know, because we all know that films are about... Films as biographies are about as accurate as Wikipedia. At the end of the day, what matters is that I know that he got exposure to the Robert Block novel. Oh, yeah, he did, majorly. And uh, one one notable thing, though, is uh, he loved the idea of killing your protagonist off two-thirds of the way through the film. If the movie is to be believed, his wife said, that's a terrible idea. She should be killed off halfway through. And indeed she was. Very brilliantly. The movie very neatly bisects that way, actually. Um, in fact, when I watched it, I had a sudden errand that I had to go run. And the errand came at almost the exact moment that the uh, shower scene ended. Ah. So, when I watched the remake, I wound up deliberately bisecting it in that place. Because I thought that was a good place to do it. 
I think you mentioned, uh, you know, you were uh, strongly, you know, even though you wouldn't have done it, uh, strongly considering not finishing it because the first half of that the remake is just... Uh... I'm glad I did finish it ultimately. Um, and I'll th talk about why when we get there, but yeah, yeah, there was there was some serious consideration given. God, Psycho. Black and white. Deliberately black and white. Several. I've seen several reasons given for why, and I think they're all true. Mm-hmm. I know that part of it was budgetary. I mean, he was shooting on a shoestring budget. I suppose we should point out that this was not a movie that was coming at a point where it was early in Hitchcock's career by even a long shot. Oh, no. He was making movies in, in the 20s. I mean, he was Alfred Hitchcock as we know him in that moment. Right. Already a legend, already a, a figure of great renown. Uh, in fact, North by Northwest, which we uh, discussed last time, came out a few years before this one. Yeah, well, it came out actually the year before. Oh, okay. Yeah, because uh, after we talked, I answered checking. Yeah, uh, Psycho was 1960. So, I mean, North by Northwest was, of course, a big studio film made with the full awareness of, you know, we get to do a big Hitchcock movie. And uh, as we discussed, it was a great movie. Um, so just imagine for a second that you are the biggest director in the world, which Hitchcock indisputably was at that moment. And this is what you decide to do. A, a, a black and white, long after movies have have decided to go to color to compete with television. Yeah, a black and white, basically, I don't know if I'd call it a slasher film, but close. There's only three real scare scenes as we know them in the film. True, yeah. Which doesn't make the movie unintimidating in the least. Uh, oh no, they're all, they're all built toward... Yeah, I mean, but it's definitely in the slasher milieu. Yeah, it's definitely an exploitation film. So, yeah, it's it's kind of a ballsy move for, like, just coming off a big hit and being, yeah, being the biggest director ever. The only director I can think of that could do something like this today would be Steven Soderbergh. And he pretty much has thrown out any rule book for what you're supposed to do as a director. I mean, yeah. he, he does anything and everything he wants to do. Which is amazing. Yeah, it should be noted that's bearing a lot of very productive fruit of late. Contagion and Magic Mike were first-rate films, um, and I haven't seen side effects, but I keep hearing really good things about it. Soderbergh's about the only person who could pull that off today. You would never see Spielberg or, um, I don't know, I could see Scorsese trying this, but that's only because Scorsese is such a film buff that I think he would do it as a deliberate homage to Hitchcock. Oh, yeah. Going to such a grungy grimy essentially for that day trash film oh and the opening scene just spells that it starts at a seedy motel mm-hmm a seedy motel a couple is having um an affair and uh it, yeah it's 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 a very it's it really is saying point blank look we know what we're making in that first scene we know what kind of film this is have it here you know it was a cheap film i think it was only about a million bucks Oh, that's pretty good. Well, you know, it's $60, but still pretty good. Mm-hmm. Today, it would, I don't know what it would be. It, it would be, like, World's End budget, like $20 million. Yeah, it, it would It would still be, you know, because he still had some above-the-line cast. Uh, Janet Lee plays Marion. Anthony Perkins was a known entity at that time. Martin Balsam, one of the great uh, character actors of his day, is in it. And, of course, the, the two leading ladies would have to be big for the time, because, just because... 
you know, the shock of having Janet Lee in your film and then killing her and just not having her be in the film for the rest. You just don't do that. Right. Well, you just didn't do that. It's much more common nowadays to, to pull that off, actually. Yeah, especially, like, when you can, uh, you know, afford to start. Like, God, stars will just make cameos these days, just because. I think one of my favorites is when The Rock shows up in Reno 911, the movie, as this clearly superior, awesome super cop who gets blown up immediately. Oh, my God. But, I mean... <laughs> So yeah, I mean, it, so we talk about that opening shot. Let's talk about the nature of that opening shot, because I think that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Hitchcock had a big plan for that opening shot. He wanted to do a, a straight zoom into a hotel room. From, yeah, what is essentially a helicopter shot? And there was no way he could pull it off. No, not in the 60s. Not in the 60s. So he accomplished the effect... Uh, basically, he just yeah he spliced a bunch of footage together. Pretty see like you can you can kind of tell it's a few shots spliced together, but uh, at the same time it's pretty seamless. Like you barely notice them. Yeah, they're very smooth. They are, especially going into the hotel room, like from from like a barely cracked window. It's funny because actually the slightly jagged nature of the shot makes it a little bit unsettling. Yeah, it does. And that's helped by the fact that that's coming off of the uh, Saul Bass credit sequence. And man, his credit sequence is still a good black and white. Yeah, they 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 look wonderful. And um, you know, of course, you've got a Bernard Herrmann score behind it. Yeah, Hitchcock might have come into this doing a. Uh, an exploitation film, but he wasn't about to leave his usual collaborators behind, and he didn't. No, and Tom Notch won this too. I have no doubt that Herman probably worked for less than his usual fee. I'm sure for it, but uh, he got he got it back in royalties. He got it back in royalties. Oh, did he? working for Hitchcock, man. You'd gladly take that, though. Oh, yeah. I suppose we should uh, jump into the plot of the film, shouldn't we? Mm, yes. Marion Crane has just gone to work from the hotel where she has met her, her boyfriend. I don't think either of them are married, are they? Um, he is paying alimony. Oh, yeah, that's true. And she is single. So it's... In, the, in those days, it's kind of a lurid affair. But, yeah, even even so. Yeah, she goes to work. They have a client who... What's he want to do exactly? He wants to buy a house for his daughter who's getting married, and he wants to pay for it in cash. Ah, uh, yes. He flirts with Marion while he's flaunting the fact that he's paying with cash. And the boss is like, Ah, surely you don't want to do that. That flirting leads to one of the most awkward jokes in the film when uh, Marion's poor, plain co-worker observes he was flirting with you i guess he must have noticed my wedding ring <laughs> hitchcock pulled off a joke at an actress's at the expense of an actress's looks is there any way we could possibly make this more cruel ouch oh yeah there is a way that we can make this more cruel do you know who that actress was 
Pat Hitchcock. Oh, I did not realize that. Hitchcock included a joke in a movie at the expense of his daughter's looks. Ouch. Lassie. Yeah, I did not realize that. Ouchie. Yeah. That just gives that scene a little bit more burn. Damn. Well then. And I should note, I don't want to make too many comparisons to the remake yet, but man, is that joke fumbled in the remake. Horribly. <sighs> yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I, it just felt very out of place, like a lot of things in that film. Yeah, but we're going to get there. We're, we're going to get there. We'll get there. So, you know, the boss tells, you know, just tells her in private, hey, just, just, I don't feel comfortable even having that sing around for the weekend. It's Friday. Uh, for the weekend, so, you know, just put, put it in the bank, will you? You know, and of course she tells him, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just go home right after the bank. I, I don't feel well. So, Hitchcock does a very good show me, don't tell me. Like, he is the master of show me, don't tell me. He is, like, it's pure cinema. The very next thing you see after that scene is she's in her room, she's getting made up, and then you pan to the money sitting there on the bed. She did not go to the bank. And then it pans over to a suitcase full of clothes. Mm. We we see everything we need to know right there in that one shot. Exactly. We don't we don't need to be told any you know, anything about what she's planning. You know, it's very obvious that she's the kind of person that she's never done this thing, kind of thing before. She takes off. She's she's kind of she's plagued by notions of what people in her life would say. Marion, what in the world? What are you doing up here? Of course, I'm glad to see you. I always am. What is it, Marion? One of the things that's interesting is Hitchcock leaves uh, makes it very clear that this is the stuff that's going through her head. Right, right. You know, it's obvious that this is what she's picturing. This is what she's thinking. She She's really disturbed. He builds the paranoia beautifully. Oh, he does. After this goes on for like a, uh, for like a minute, she sees her boss crossing the street in front of her, who, of course, sees her and is puzzled as to why she's there. Because, you know, she should be at home. I'd be like, hey, I had to run to the pharmacy, but that's just me. Yeah, exactly. But hey, you know, it's she's in a very, very paranoid state, so I mean the tension here, Herman's score is so good here. I mean it's just ugh, you're on the edge of your seat. As I said, I last saw your sister when she left this office on Friday. She said she didn't feel well and wanted to leave early. I said she could. That was the last I saw. Oh, wait a minute. I did see her sometime later driving uh, I think you'd better come over here to my office, quick. The line that got me, not so much from the new version, but from the 60s version. I'll get it back, and if any of it's missing, I'll replace it with her fine, soft flesh. Whoa. Damn. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's, it's an intense moment. And it's, and it's funny just how very effective this scene is, because when you really get right down to it, it's really not that there's much going on. It's that you're so fully subsumed by the character's state of mind. Yeah, yeah. You know, psycho. Who's the psycho here? Like, well, we all go a little mad sometime. Yep, we all do. <laughs> That's the truth. She gets awoken by a cop because she's uh, slept on the side of the road. I never carry more than I can afford to lose. <laughs> Count them. I declare. I don't. 
that's how I get to keep it. Out of that paranoia, she goes to trade in her car with Arizona license plates for one with California license plates. And of course, she's in a hurry there too, and that arouses suspicion from the from the car salesman. And of course, that same policeman shows. I assume it's the same policeman. I think it's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, because he recognizes her in the car. Yeah, pulls across the street to this car dealer, and just as he's uh, approaching, you know, she tries to drive off without her bags. Hey! Just put it in here, please. Thank you. And of course, that just builds on her guilt and her suspicion that hey, they're going to they're going to come after her. You know, it starts raining. You know, it's so bad that she can't see. She sees the sign in the distance, and then uh, as it comes closer, we see it clear more clearly. Bates Motel meets Norman Bates, and you know, it seems like a normal kind of guy. Oh, we have twelve vacancies, twelve cabins, twelve vacancies. They uh, they moved away the highway. Very. This was a big change that uh, Hitchcock made from the original book. In the original book, uh, Norman was overweight, middle-aged, unattractive, and just... Really? Yeah, not appealing at all. Uh, the kind of guy that you would probably suspect of doing something very bad. That was a good change on his part. Yeah, the kind of guy that, okay, they're living in isolation... Well, you know, except for his mother, um, up in the <laughs> distance. Hitchcock said, no, no, we're, we're, we're going to go in a different direction, and went with the very good-looking, charming... I mean, it's it's really important to note, Anthony Perkins had a female fan base. <laughs> he did, he did, uh, in the 60s, no comments. <laughs> but, you know, he did. He, he, he had female fans, and... He he has charm about him. He's a very likable guy. He's a very likable presence, and he's very sympathetic. And that does show through in this part. Yeah, I mean it. It worked. It worked very very well. You know, he does kind of start to get a little creepy in the parlor scene. That that scene is brilliantly done. It's brilliantly lit. The stuffed birds are terrifying. Uh, there's there's pictures of birds everywhere too. You can't escape the imagery. No, you really can't. Birds of prey. Yeah, I think that's even all over the house when you when it you is. see shots. Yeah, inside the house too. But yeah, there's there are some low angle shots on Norman that work really well, and uh, you know they're talking about his mother, and you know that's when he really starts to get creepy. On the surface, it's it's a semi innocent conversation. Sometimes, when she talks to me like that, I feel I'd like to go up there and curse her. And, and, and leave her forever. Or at least a fire. But I know I can't. The idea, he just can't fathom it. No, no. And he gets really creepy there. Oh, the, and the, the line that gets me, and the line where if I were her, I would just say, well, it was nice, but I'm gonna leave now. Goodbye. Wouldn't it be better if you put her someplace... You mean an institution? A madhouse? I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to sound uncaring. What do you know about caring? Have you ever seen the inside of one of those places? The laughing and the tears. I meant well. People always mean well. 
They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it should be noted, a little bit of cultural context is useful here. Mental hospitals in that day were kind of horrific. Yeah, especially for women. It, we, we were just starting to understand that maybe just locking up the crazies wasn't the best idea. I mean, we were starting to realize that, gee, lobotomies might be a really terrible thing. It's a permanent solution for what could be a fixable problem. So, I mean, this is a movie that definitely reflects a moment where we're starting to go, uh, yeah. So, okay, his apprehension makes sense. Yeah. I also f feel like this would be a good moment for us to discuss cultural osmosis. Cultural osmosis, yeah. Um, the shower scene. Well, before we get to the shower scene, I feel like it's, you know, talking about these early scenes with Norman. We have to address a key problem that you and I faced while watching this movie that people who were watching it in the 60s didn't have. Uh, we couldn't help but go in knowing what happens. You know, his mother is him. We know it from the word go. We know that nothing that Norman says can be listened to in, in, in an innocent context. We know that he's a deranged lunatic. The way the film plays out, you're not supposed to know. Like, you know he's covering, but uh, you're not supposed to know that he's the mastermind, he is the end-all, be-all. Like, he is all that there is to this. You're really not supposed to know, and I wish I didn't know, is what it comes down to. Yeah. Honestly, I was watching this for the first time when I was watching it for the cast. I admit it, I hadn't seen the film until now. You hadn't seen Psycho? No, I just had never gotten around to it. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. I, I think I'm making it very clear what I thought of the film. Uh, it goes without saying, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. But I, but at the same time, I couldn't help but know. Yeah, yeah, you knew. But I did try to watch the film thinking with that in mind. Like, when I was reviewing it, I tried to put all of these cultural knowledge out of my head so that I could really focus and enjoy the film, and I was able to mute it, but I couldn't turn it off. Yeah, unfortunately. It doesn't rob the film of its power, it just means that it's something that we can't get around. Right. Yeah, it's still a very creepy, tense uh, uh, watch, but damn. But let's get to that shower scene, because we were just falling short of that. Yeah. <sighs> it's infamous. She goes into her room... And uh, the first little inkling in the film that uh, you know something is terribly off is, you know, he takes one of the bird pictures down and there is a hole. Like, it's it's a huge hole on his side, but it's like a pinhole from the other side that goes into the bathroom. And he basically watches her undress. It's creepy. It's very creepy. Just before she you know, gets in the shower, he puts it back up. And he's shaking. Yeah, he is. Like he he doesn't know he he doesn't know how to handle how he feels basically. It, it's it's disturbing. And we'll get to the the change the one little change that the, uh, I hate having to go back to Psycho ninety eight. But Jesus, we're gonna we're gonna tear that moment apart. Okay. Yeah, we are. Yeah. So she gets in the shower, and the sh the shower is also kind of symbolism because you know at that point she decides you know after her talk with Norman, it's made her realize you know that with the we all go a little mad sometimes. Uh, she's like, yeah, yeah, we do, 
and she realizes, you know what? This is just a moment of insanity. I have to go back. I have to make everything right and go, okay. I don't know why I did this, but it's going to be okay. It's not unfixable. It's not, unless there's an outside force acting on it. Barring act of God or psycho murder. But yeah, so the, the shower scene is also kind of symbolic because, you know, you see the one striking image that sticks with me, right? Watch this film is the shower head. Like the camera is directly in the middle of it and it looks like water is coming out from all in. It's basically like almost like a baptism. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a cleansing, you know, and the her facial expression when it first comes out, it's like, ah, I feel clean. Well, just after the cleansing, of course, the curtain opens and she gets brutally stabbed to death. And it's brutal. It is brutal. Obviously, it goes without saying that there's not much in the way of actual shots of the knife mm. entering flesh. I think I've seen three frames, maybe. I I think those three frames may may just be in your head. Yeah, I mean, if, if even that. I mean, I'm, I'm saying that's yeah. the number that I've seen listed online. But, yeah. I mean, it's... That's that's the way it's done, though. I mean, that's that's what you're meant to think. Like, it's it did its job brilliantly. Like, the way it's cut together, like, it's just shots of the knife and its sound effects. And, uh, you know, you see blood dripping down, quote-unquote blood. But, yeah, and you see, like, a shot of her navel with the knife, like, just coming down. Just, just the way it's cut together is brilliant. It's a brilliant effect. It's very brutal, even though you see no gore. Of course, you've got the infamous uh, sound the infamous sound work by uh, Herman there. You almost don't want to call it a score. It's noises. That series of notes uh, is used all throughout pop culture, everywhere. Uh, you know, if you want, in a movie, in a comedy, if you want, like, just a parody moment of... Oh my god, it's a psycho with a knife. That moment and that score has penetrated so deep into into film lore that yeah, everybody uses that little riff. And it's worth noting, I think Hitch- I know Hitchcock wanted to do the shower scene silent. Oh, jeez. Changed his mind. Uh, I, I, I think Herman just went on ahead and scored it anyway, and Hitchcock listened to it and was like, yeah, gotta go with this. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good on Herman's part that he disagreed and did anyway. Uh, if I if if I'm wrong about this, uh, it can be corrected. But uh, it, it it really it's it's effective. It if anything, it conveys the sound of the stabbing. It does. The blood effects are horrifying, even though it's literally chocolate syrup. Yeah, Hitchcock actually has a story about that. A little boy came up to me one day and asked me. What do you use for blood in Psycho? Oh, well, chocolate syrup. Thank you, and then moved on. I thought that was surprisingly astute for a little boy. Yeah, it looks right. It It's graphic. Even without the explicit shots, it's a graphic, effective scene. Okay, cultural osmosis be damned, the scene still works. Oh, God, yeah. It's horrifying. Especially when it goes to that match cut of the blood circling down the drain and then shifting to her eye. The uh, Yeah, the like extreme close-up, the iris of her eye. And it just, and the camera circles around that too uh, before coming to a, you know, a shot of her face and then 
pans up and out of the room to the money wrapped in the newspaper sitting on the uh, nightstand and then up to the window where you see the house and you hear mother oh god mother blood blood it's an interesting contrast because after that extremely graphic violent scene you know there's a very slow methodical unwinding of it as norman cleans up the mess it is very methodical it is very uh calculating like in as calculating as you can be in a moment of pure shock there are shades of maybe he's done this before it is implied yes yes you know because when he sees well some in his mind he sees blood on his mother's clothes hands whatever yeah the first thing he does is run down to the to the motel room you know and he does uh after he mops up and he does a sweep of the you know motel room to see if he missed anything and of course the key thing that you're that you're keeping in the back of your mind is the forty thousand dollars, the MacGuffin of the film, the MacGuffin. Yeah, what's gonna happen to that? And of course, he just you know last thing in the room he sees a newspaper. Goes, oh, grabs it, and then uh, you know takes a quick look at it and then puts it in the trunk without a thought. He has no idea about the money in it. No, and really, if he did, I don't know if he would have done anything. He wouldn't know how to react to it. Doesn't mean anything to him. Yeah, and then he, and then he, uh, the last scene of that little sequence is, uh, yeah, he's pushing the car into the swamp. I don't know what he's chewing on, but he keeps putting things into his mouth. Candy corn. Candy corn? Oh, okay. I wondered. And you know, it just watches it sink, and then, it, like, stops for a moment, and he's starts to panic a little bit. And then you hear bubbles, and then it's, it sinks completely. Then he gives that little smile. And then the film jumps. Yeah, you're introduced. You, know, you see Sam again. He's working in like a hardware store. Marion's sister, who's played by... Vera Miles. Vera Miles, that's right. I think it's been a week. Roughly yeah. a week since she's disappeared. And they know she took off with the money. And they, uh, they haven't gotten the police involved. And they know that she's... Uh, a reasonable person, they just want to find her and uh, try to talk her down from whatever it is she's decided she's going to do. The, a private detective comes in while they're talking. Let's all talk about Marion, shall we? He is, he's a great character. Again, uh, I'll be dealing with, more with him in the remake, but uh, he, he's, this, he's this great figure of this day. One of those character types that you don't see anymore. And I hate that. The the uh, the private eye? Yeah. Yeah, you only really see it anymore in, like, film noir throwbacks. Who the fuck are you? Why are you following me around? I'm a brother Seamus. Like an Irish monk? What the fuck are you talking about? My name is Dufino. I'm a private snoop like you, man. What? And it should be noted, we have, we've gotten this far in the cast without discussing this, but really... Psycho is much less a slasher film, a horror film as we know it, and much more a film noir. Yeah, it kind of is. It's not a mystery because we know we know. Well, actually, no. That's not true. It is kind of a mystery because we don't exactly know what's going on as uh, in the second half it unfolds that, hey, Norman Bates' mother is dead. And it is a film about morality in many ways and about 
human behavior and I mean yeah it, it's it's very much a throwback you know it is well it's not a throwback because that style was in vogue at that moment uh it's it's a film noir and it's a very 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 great one this is true I never I never realized it could be considered that but that's true I mean, especially the way that it's shot more than anything else it's a visual film noir there are a lot of low angles but it just I, I think it's a very effective blend of the two genres it is it is and especially since all oh, the private eye gets killed yeah he, he shows up at the Bates motel he gets some information he uh, calls back he quickly is on to Norman because he's a smart character and he gets killed immediately Oh yeah, uh, not before not before alerting you know Marion's uh, sister and boyfriend that hey yeah she spent last Saturday night at the Bates Motel it's right out here on the old highway I even know what cabin she was in it was number one well I tell you I don't feel like entirely satisfied uh, see this boy had a sick old mother I think she saw Marion and talked to her and I st I still jump at this part because uh, I don't expect it to happen this quickly but you know you see a door open. And you hear that, that music cue, and you see Norman's mother come out and stab him at the top of the stairs. And he has such a look of shock at, you know, on, on his face. You know, that, that shot where it's on him and he's falling down the stairs is brilliant. Like, it, it's, a nice, it's a nice little sense of vertigo. It's very effective. That was almost more brutal than the shower one. Almost. Almost. You know, things just pile on in this film. Yeah. From the beginning, everything just piles on. Things get out of hand for characters. Like I think, I think there's a case for, uh, you know, the focal point at the f at the front of the film is Marion. Uh, I think the char the focal character uh, at the back of the film is Norman, even though it follows these other characters. You know, because it's it's him trying to get out of the situation or trying to slip from under it, and you know, what's he going to do? Well, actually. I, I, I would make an, an argument, I realize this is going to be kind of a strange one, mm -hmm. I would make the argument that Marion is still the focal character, even if she's not in it. Hmm, that is interesting. Janet Lee famously, when asked why she would take on that part, said, you know, even though she's killed off halfway through the film, she said, yeah, but who are they talking about for the rest of the film? <laughs> That's true. I mean, I feel like her murder then becomes the focal point. And I, I feel like she's still the focus, even if she's not there. So, yeah, nice consistency there. Even though uh, even though it is a bisected film, it is a nice consistency. I mean, it's not like she's just dropped from the film. No. The question of then, okay, these characters figuring out what's going on keeps her very much in your minds. And Lee was right completely on that point. That's, that's very true. I didn't think of that. But yeah, getting back to the plot, yeah, they go to they go to the sheriff. You know, it's the first time they actually go to the police in this matter. Yeah, you know, to try to get what they can. Like after the after the detective has disappeared, and that's when it's revealed that Norman Bates's mother, right? Yes. Norman Bates's mother has been dead and buried in Green Lawn Cemetery for the past ten years. Or is she? Yes, she is. Well, if the woman up there is Mrs. Bates. Who's that woman buried out in Green Lawn Cemetery? Exactly. 
And that's what prompts the final scene where they go up to the they go up to the house to investigate. Uh, you know, he they check into a room as a couple. You know, they, they do kind of pressure Norman a bit. First time I've ever seen it happen. You check in any other place in this country without bags and you have to pay in advance. Ten dollars. Of course he keeps him distracted, keeps Norman distracted while she goes up to the house. You know, she goes into the mother's room, you know, finds a really creepy indentation on the bed. Yeah. Of her on her side. That that alone is just ugh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's wrong. Yeah, especially after you find out what exactly is the deal with the mother is. You yeah, she goes you know, Norman comes into the house which makes her hide, and of course she sees the cellar door, opens it, and well, finds his dead mother in in still in clothes in a wig. Uh, and uh, of course Norman bursts in wearing his mother's clothes and wig with a knife. Uh, Sam basically clobbers him on the back of the head and and then kind of the final scene of the film where you know you have the psychiatrist explaining exactly what's happening, what's going on. Kind of an anticlimax at this point. I've heard people argue that Hitchcock intended this as almost a parody. Yeah, of those movies, of those types of movies. What's well, the idea that you can explain um, human evil this easily? I got the whole story, but not from Norman. I got it from his mother. Norman Bates no longer exists. He only half existed to begin with. And now, the other half has taken over. It's like, okay, are you really buying any of this shit? No, we're not. Of course we're not. No. The coda to that is, of course, you know, the, you know, he feels a little chill. Can I bring this into him? Yeah, of course. And they follow him down the hall and they go in and uh, give him the blanket. She, and then he, she has that little speech... I'll just sit here and be quiet, just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. And of course, you know that, well, no, he's fucked, but... Yeah. But still, in his mind, he's just... Mm. And, and there's that great shot of him looking up with uh, the skull superimposed very subtly. Yeah, very nice. It's creepy, and bam, that's the movie. Yeah, and of course, the very last shot is, you know, them starting to drag the, drag the car out of the swamp. Of course, I think the implication of that is, you know, the... Sh- after the cut, they're going to drag more out of that swamp. Yeah, that's very much the implication. Which the remake completely ruins. But yeah, that is Psycho. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's a very simple film, and I think it would be a mistake to try and overthink it, because it really is at the end of the day. Hitchcock tried to make an exploitation film, and really that is what he made. But it's a good, solid, quick thriller. It's entertaining. I, I think much of that can be uh, traced to Perkins, who is so very strong in this part, that I feel like he really gives the film an element of power that it needs. I mean, his Norman is someone who you're interested in. You want to see where this character is going. You know, what What would be the modern-day equivalent of, say, an Anthony Perkins? 
like who could pull this kind of thing off. There are several actors I think could do it. Um, I know Edward Norton has done parts like this before. Um, trying to think who else. Um, Joaquin Phoenix would be absolutely amazing. Oh God, yeah. But you know, it's hard to say because there aren't a lot of actors. Um, ben Foster, I know, does a lot of these parts, but I mean, it's hard to say, really. I mean, because I don't know. It, it's hard also because you, looking at Perkins' career, there's it's another career that's very much bisected. He played all kinds of parts up until this moment in his career, and he got typecast. He got typecast hard by this movie. Wow. And he publicly said that even knowing what it did to his career, he still would have taken this movie. Well, that's cool anyway. On the other hand, he also did work forever. Uh, he was working right up until his death. Like, I saw that I saw that he uh, was, in fact, in Psycho 2. He's actually in all four of the Psycho movies. Um, Seriously? Yeah, he. Wow. It's, it's more of a wraparound sequences in Psycho 4, uh, which is a prequel. Um, right. And But he did that as a grand finale to the series because he was dying at the time that the film was made. Oh, wow. He was dying. He knew he was dying. And so he couldn't be in it very much. But uh, they did that as a finale. That, was done, that one was actually done for TV, it should also be noted. Well, that's kind of cool. Like, I will probably never see those movies. Just My understanding but... is that Psycho 2 is actually very good. Really? Yeah, I've heard Psycho 2. It's not the original, but I've heard that it's a very good film in its own right. I'll have to then, sometime. Before I get into a couple of the others, I, I do want to talk about just a couple of the other actors, because I, I do want to give some praise across the board. Janet Lee is wonderful in the film. Yeah. Had the film continued on being about her character in a conventional sense, I wouldn't have minded it because she's very good in it. She's she's very gripping. She she is. Uh, she really like in, even those scenes where you know she's driving and all you can see is her face and her you know just hear your thoughts. Uh, her face does say a lot. Yeah, very expressive actress. Yeah, if you if you watched that or those moments on. Uh, mute. I'm sure that you could get the very same as uh, what you did if you didn't. Absolutely. And of course, a classic Hitchcock blonde. Yes. Very stunning woman, it should be noted. Very stunning wo woman. It, it also should be noted, in the movie Hitchcock, she is played by Scarlett Johansson. Yes, she is. She is. You're correct on that, yeah. Which, watching it this time, after having seen that, I can totally see that. Yeah. And that would have been, uh, if this remained the modern day, that would have been her. Yeah, it it would have been. And I have no doubt she could have pulled that part off, too. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm starting to see directors actually figuring out what to do with her... Oh, thank God. Yeah. Took long enough. To lesser degrees, uh, Miles, um, John Gavin, who Hitchcock did not like, called him the board... But but he does his job. He does his job well enough. I mean, his character is what he is, and eh, it's effective. It works. Yeah, that's that's Sam, the boyfriend, right? Yeah. And as I said, I, I really liked uh, Martin Balsam as the uh, detective. I mean, just a good straight shooter. I I, I like characters like that, though. Yeah. Yeah. Vera Miles was also very good. Yeah. 
She didn't have very much to do, though. I mean, I, I didn't really feel like her character had a lot to do. No, she was uh, basically just the drive uh, for a second half. Like, if Sam wanted to just stay there you know, and wait for the detective, she's like, no, 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 we, we've got to do this ourselves because there's something very wrong here. Yeah. Yeah, so, so she's, she's kind of the drive for the second part of the film. Well, as, as mentioned, there have been a couple of spin-offs of Psycho. There were three sequels. Um, there was a TV movie for a planned anthology about someone else taking over the Bates Motel, and uh, it would have been an anthology about things happening. It only made it to a TV movie. There is the current A&E series, which uh, deals with a young Norman Bates and his mother, which I've heard mixed about. Um, I will say from looking at the casting, uh, the guy they've got playing uh, young Norman looks eerily like uh, Perkins. Yeah, and uh, he's Freddie Highmore of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory fame. Yep. He's Charlie. He grew up to be a psychopath. <laughs> uh, again, I, have, I haven't seen it. I know that uh, Vera Farmiga plays the mother, uh, and uh, I'm sure that for her alone it's probably worth watching. Yeah. But now now we have to address the 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 spin-off that I'm of a mixed opinion about. I I I yeah. like it more than I expected to like it, but this is the Shot for Shot 98 remake which we just have to address. Yeah. Gus Van Sant just coming off of the success from Good from Goodwill Hunting. This is the film he wanted to do. And What's interesting is when he was asked why he did it, he said, so that nobody else has to. Huh. That's a very interesting response. Near as I can tell, he wasn't particularly wanting to do this as an, oh, I'm passionate about this material. It was a, I want to do this as kind of like a film school stunt. And so he spent Universal's money to do this. It's worth noting, the film was a very rushed production. Like... When we say he was coming off of Goodwill Hunting, we don't mean that the film was in post-production and had buzz. I mean, they this was rushed into production because, you know, that film had Oscar buzz. It has, of course, achieved a place in the culture. It's one of my favorite films. Yeah. He so he so he decided, okay, I'm gonna try and do this as a shot-for-shot shot remake. Got to the point of using the original screenplay. The original score. The original score with with some translation by uh, Danny Elfman, which I'm not going to complain too much about Elfman being brought in to adapt and uh, work on the score because I happen to think Elfman's a composer of equal merit. I'm a huge yeah, Danny Elfman I would fan. agree. Uh, I think he's brilliant. And the... Uh, the cast that uh, Van Sant got together for it is impressive by any stretch. Um, Anne Heche played Marion. Uh, Viggo Mortensen played Sam. Julianne Moore and William H. Macy, both who were coming off of Boogie Nights, to cite another one of my favorite films, uh, were, were brought in to play... Uh, Macy played Arbogast and uh, Moore played uh, The Sister. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've got a really great uh, Philip Baker Hall also out of uh, Boogie Nights. 
plays uh, the sheriff. Uh, Robert Forster coming off of Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this was a movie that was very much, okay, what's big in winter 1997? All right, right. That's, that's what we're using. <laughs> yeah, that's our cast. And you may notice there's one big omission that I'm not talking about yet. Mm. That's because against all sanity, Van Sant decided to hire Vince Vaughn to play Norman Bates. Yeah. What what was he in previously at that point? Swingers and a few other things. The Lost World. He's in The Lost World. Oh, yeah, that's right, he is. Also alongside Moore, incidentally. Yeah. He had not established himself as the comedic actor that he's known as now. But you know what? He, that still didn't stop him from being just not at all right for this part. Mm, no. Even remotely. Like, immediately. Like, um, you mentioned this to me, like, and I, I did see it immediately. Like, it's, it's the laugh. You have a vacancy? Oh, we have 12, in fact. 12 cabins. he is trying to mimic anthony perkins now i mentioned that i would have rather seen joaquin phoenix do it and indeed he'd actually worked with van sant on uh to die for Uh, they'd worked they'd worked together so he was considered apparently it's just that vaughn was who he who van sant decided to go with i would make the argument that while that's not the only decision that this film gets completely wrong, I mean, there are some other decisions that this film makes just that are disastrous. That's the worst decision, and I think that that's probably the decision that sinks the film beyond repair. Yeah, I would agree. Because, yeah, Vaughn is playing it as a mimic of Perkins. He's not trying to do something different. He's trying to recreate the performance. Just... Beat for beat. Yeah, he is. He's creepy. Creepy, but not in the way that he should be. No. And it's funny, in a weird way, he actually looks more like the original conception of Norman from the book. True. He hadn't put on the weight that he's put on now. He still has that very... His eyes look wild. Everything about him just feels unsettling. So yeah, he's just... I don't know. He's in it. Yeah. He's there. He's in it. One thing I'd say uh, about the design of the Bates Hotel and the house is that they they feel like sterile recreations. They do. I mean, like yeah, you you had mentioned to me the sign. Yeah, the sign is just plain Jane. I I guess that's what they were going for. But the original is iconic. Yeah, the original is very iconic, and just seeing that you know instead of neon letters, it's just like a a backlit sign. I don't know. It just it feels off. It feels wrong. It does. Uh, the things that Van Sant adds are kind of weird. Like, um, there's a lot of sound design things. Like, in the in the CD motel in the beginning, you can hear lots of sex sounds yeah. beyond the walls. Hotels of this sort aren't interested in when you come in, but when your time's up... <laughs> I hate having to be with you in a place like this. I didn't mention that in the pre-discussion, but that really annoyed me. Yeah, it's like, okay, we get the idea. There's like a close-up shot of a fly on the sandwich. It's like, oh yeah, you hardly touched your food. And you see flies all over the sandwich. Like, oh yeah. And then 
like, there's a close-up shot of a fly, and it's like, okay, if you're trying to establish a motif here, then... Try less hard? Yeah. And there, you know, that comes back a few times in the sound. Uh, like, you hear, you hear just buzzing of flies, and he tries to add some disturbing sounds, and uh, at, especially at the end, when the mother is talking. He was always bad. And in the end, he intended to tell them that I killed those girls and that man. As if I could do anything except just sit and stare like one of his stuffed birds. Well, actually, that final monologue is a mix of the actress who was playing, doing the voice of the mother in this movie. And him. Vaughn and the act and the original monologue from the first movie. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? I did not know that. Interesting choice. Yeah, but the things the things added are weird. A couple big ones right next to each other. The scene where he takes the picture off of the wall and you know peers at her through the through a little peephole. He blatantly adds that Norman Bates is masturbating. Yeah, it's unmistakable. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you can see the orgasm and everything. And that's especially the moment that pisses me off. To me, it misses the point. It does miss the point. That's like a blatant, like, you know, it says in the end, yeah, he he had feelings for her, you know, he had sexual... It's like, that may be true, but he didn't know how to process that. If he knew how to process them, he wouldn't have murdered her. Right. If he did process them, yeah, he wouldn't have been masturbating. Come on. <sighs> it's disgusting and it's unpleasant. And, you know, of course, Roger Ebert, who hand this movie. Ebert, of course, being a great fan of Hitchcock, shredded this movie. And he cited that, he cited that scene and said that's exactly what this movie is. Right. Just a bit of a wink. Yeah. It's disgusting. And then the shower scene. The entire point of doing a remake of Psycho is to, is to get it right, right? So, theoretically, that's, that'd be one scene you wouldn't screw with. Of course he does. He does. And it's really badly done. Yeah. I mean, he, he mimics most of the shots, tries to mimic the tone, and uh, he adds sh shots of clouds. I had no idea what that was doing. I don't know. Like, I... Uh, when you told me that, it had been a long time since I'd seen the remake, and I didn't remember much about it. But w when you told me that, I was baffled. Like, I blocked that. He adds weird freeze frames. He does. I don't know. He speed ramps it a bit. I mean, it's... I don't know. It's... It doesn't work. It's not anywhere near as effective as the original. No. Not at all. And he does the same thing during Arbogast's murder, but then he really screws it up. Yeah. What's that sheet doing there? There's a sheet? I think there's a sheet. There's an animal, and there's a shot of a woman. Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, I watched the new version yesterday, and uh, I completely blocked that. And, alright, we talk about how effective that shot is. No, Van Sant does not get that shot right at all. No... Yeah, he tries to, I don't know, he tries to add, for all the things he kept the same, it's like he was saying, hey, this isn't disturbing enough for this modern era, so let's revamp it with some weirdly 
uh, random and disturbing shots. Okay. If you're going to do that, why bother keeping everything else? Speaking of the thing, all the things you kept the same, you know, movie making has changed. Movie making and script writing has changed a lot in the last 50 years. The dialogue does feel like it was written in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, it's brilliant. It is brilliant for being written in the 60s. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can ignore it, but, uh, like, there are key lines, like, like, there's one from the car dealer that said, You can do anything you have a mind to. Being a woman, you will. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there are just some other little random lines that just kind of stick out like that. The, the, the way that it does feel effective is that, uh, you know, again, with Arbogast, he's played by William H. Macy. Yeah. And Macy swings for the fences in this movie. It's worth noting that pretty much all the actors were told, do your own thing. And some of them did. Uh, Moore makes a very, plays Lila very aggressively. As I think she should have. She even publicly said that she was playing the character as if she was a lesbian. <laughs> That's interesting. How far is it to the old highway? You want to go out there, don't you? Blast in on our gas, the old lady. Maybe scare her a little bit? Yeah. That wouldn't be a wise thing to do. Impatience doesn't run in my family, Sam. I'm going out the there. Said an just... hour or less. And Moore's fine. She's an actress that... She's one of my favorites. And uh, she's, she, she's good here. Um, Viggo Mortensen plays the part very sleazy. In the initial go, I didn't like it very much. But as it went on, I started to see what he was doing. And I saw that he did keep a degree of honor to the character, and ultimately I came around on his performance. Yeah. But Macy just took the uh, opposite approach and said, no, I'm very much doing what was done before. I'm playing this part as it was played before, because, I mean, that's just, that's his style. I, and, I mean, it doesn't hurt that Macy's one of our great character actors anyway, so it was... Oh, yeah. It was great to see him doing a character part yeah what's really cool though is uh you know two two years previous this was fargo yes in that film he plays a sleazy car salesman you know who is basically embezzling you know that scene where he is getting interviewed by marge marge yes Frances mcdormand's character uh you know where she's like pretty much putting the pressure on him and uh pointing out all the inconsistencies in the story that he's uh, telling her. Sorry to bother you again. Can I come in? Yeah, no, I'm kind of I'm uh, kind of busy here. I understand. I'll keep it real short then. Yeah, it's this vehicle I asked you about yesterday. I was just wondering. Yeah, like I told you, we haven't had any vehicles go missing. Okay. Are you sure? Have you done any kind of inventory recently? The car's not from our lot, ma'am. But how do you know that for sure without doing a... Well, I would know. I'm the executive sales manager. My name's Arbogast. I'm a private investigator. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to trace a girl that's been missing for, well, about a week now. Mm -hmm. Did uh, she stop here? No one stopped here for a couple weeks. You mind looking at the picture before committing yourself? Look at the picture, please. Mm -mm. You're sure? No. What's that? The lights, the sign. I had a couple last week said if it hadn't been on, they would have driven right past. It well, looked like an old, deserted... Now, you see, that's exactly my point. You said nobody had been here for a couple of weeks. Now there's this couple came by, and uh, yeah. they, they didn't know you were open. Yeah. 
Well, as you say, old habits die hard. It's really, it is really fun to see that flip, to see him being the one that's laying it on thick and pointing out all the inconsistencies in Norman's story. So by, you know, by a contrasting point, that is a really cool actor moment. Yeah. It works. Both ways it works. I mean, he's the best thing in the film for my money. I would agree. It's worth noting, the film is, as, as badly directed as it is, it's nicely shot. It is. Christopher Doyle, the uh, great Hong Kong-based cinematographer who shot Hero, uh, one of the most beautiful-looking movies I've ever seen, and also an awesome movie on... He shot it, and it the use of color in the film is great, with, yeah. one, with one notable exception. And this is a director flub. Uh, Van Sant missed the great black-and-white uh, symbolism of uh, Marion's bras. Oh, yes? Which was deliberately thrown in there. Hitchcock deliberately did it so that she was wearing a white bra before she stole the money and a black one after. Huh. I did not realize that. And that's uh, that's lost in the movie. That, that, that doesn't come through. Ugh. Dang. I didn't note her, by the way, but Anne Heche does an excellent job. She, She's easily Lee's equal. Oh, yeah. She does. And she's helped by the fact that you do have the knowledge that eh, her mental state is known not to be the most stable by her own admission. Mm-hmm. Although, now I get to talk about one mistake in the movie that just absolutely drove me up a wall. And it's subtle. You have to know... I mean, I didn't even know it was there, but I still saw it, and it, was, it drove me nuts. At one point, Marion's driving down the street, and there's a poster for the movie Six Days, Seven Nights, <laughs> which tells you that the movie was shot in June of 1998. Uh, yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't catch that flub. That was... Yeah, because I think the opening of the film says it's in December. Yeah. Now, for those of you who are uh, unaware and have forgotten that film, as I think 90% of the world has done so, including most of the people that worked on it, Heche starred in that film. Oops! Her face is on the poster. Ugh! Idiots! Uh I, I wouldn't. I guess I wouldn't be too surprised if that was intentional. But at the same time, why? It's stupid. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that's my thoughts on that. Um, honestly, I I don't hate the remake as much as I expected to. As much as I've been picking apart everything that they've gotten wrong, I'm of a mixed opinion because you've got these things that are wrong about it, but you've also got a lot of things that are right about it. As I said. With the exception of Vaughn, the actors are good. There is there is a thing where he does uh, modify a line nicely. I won't say he changes the context of it. He just brings out the context that was there. In the remake, he's stark naked. Uh, Viggo Mortensen is. Yeah. I mean, that context was there in the original, but, you know, uh, it's just kind of highlighted here. Hey, wait. We can leave together, can't we? I'm late. I mean, you have to put your shoes on. It should also be noted that um, Van Sant was able to do the helicopter shot that Hitchcock wanted. That's true. Like, he was actually able to... Uh, and you could still tell that there's some photographic trickery going on, but at the same time, it is... Looks great. Yeah, it's pretty seamless. I just... I wonder if I'd like this movie more if I hadn't seen the original. I don't know. It's a weird call. But I I also don't think the movie works independent of the original, so... No. 
as for, as for me anyway, I think I would have seen this and went, oh, there's some good things here. I don't know, though. And then went back to see the original and go, okay, this is how it should have been done. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think the best approach to take the remake is don't. Yeah. Watch the original. Yeah. I mean, as I said, the performances are enough to make me feel like if you have to see it, it's not a bad idea. But I wouldn't seek it out, even though it's ironically easier to get your hands on because it's on Netflix. Yeah. That's my thoughts on the Psycho uh, project, I guess if you could call it, you know, dealing with the remake and the original. At the at the end of the day, the original is high, highest of recommendations for me. It's an, It holds up beautifully. It does. Yeah, it's, it had been a while since I'd seen it. Uh, it's a gripping, it's a gripping picture. Yep. I can see why it's, uh, why it was a huge hit back in the day. Absolutely. So, um, shall we start talking about the next cast? Really, the next few casts. Uh, we've been planning since the beginning of this little project here. It's Marvel Movie Month. I mean, it was inevitable that we were going to have to discuss a Marvel movie. Of and course. So why not do everything? And, well, we've already done one, but now we're going to look at everything. We are going to look from X-Men to uh, Thor 2 will have been out by the time that we uh, get to that one. We're going to look at it all. We're even going to touch on the Lost Marvel movie. <laughs> yes. We're going to take a nod at the Lost Marvel movie. Um, we're going to do. We're going to bisect this into two casts. Two, maybe three. Maybe three. We're not sure yet, but uh, that Lost movie may be getting its own cast. Yeah. The first cast is going to look at is going to be 1998 to 2007. Because we are going to briefly nod at Blade. And then in 2008, a little something happened in the, in the, the Marvel Cinema world that changed everything, and we're going to do an entire cast on that and the movies that came after. Yes, and the movies that will come. And the movies that will come. We've got a good look at what's ahead for the near future, so... Boy, am I looking forward to that. You can email us at filmroompodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on tw- on the Twitters at, at filmroomcast. Our individual Twitters. Uh, Austin is at untiledusr. I am at primitivemanprd. Like us on Facebook. You can go directly there at facebook.com slash thefilmroom. On both our Twitter and Facebook, we post lots of updates. Our general thoughts on movies. Uh, that we're ultimately not going to talk about. Well, we may in a future cast. You never know. But movies we have seen recently. You can find us on our blog, where we post the supplemental material for each cast, thefilmroom.podbean.com. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, if you haven't already, uh, if you're coming at us from there. And uh, thank you for joining us this Hitchcocktober. Uh, we will be continuing in next year. Yep. With two more great Hitchcock films. That's the plan. That's the idea. Till then. Till then. Bye. Bye.
Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway and as you see, perfectly harmless looking. When in fact, it has now become known as the scene of the crime. This motel also has, as an adjunct, an old house, which is, if I may say so, a little more sinister looking less innocent than the motel itself. And in this house, the most dire, horrible events took place. I think we can go inside because the place is up for sale, although I don't know who's going to buy it now. In that window on the second floor, the single one in front, that's where the woman was first seen. Let's go inside. You see, even in daylight, this place still looks a bit sinister. Now, it was at the top of these stairs that the second murder took place. She came out of the door there and met the victim at the top. Of course, in a flash, there was the knife, and in no time, the victim tumbled and fell with a horrible crash. I think the bat broke immediately and hit the floor. It was, it's difficult to describe the way that the, the, the twisting of the, of the, well, I, it's, I won't dwell upon it, but let, let, come upstairs. Of course, the victim, or should I say victims, hadn't any conception as to the type of people they would be confronted with in this house, especially the woman. She was the weirdest and the most... Well, well let's go into her bedroom. Here's the woman's room, still beautifully preserved. and the imprint of her figure on the bed where she used to lay. I think some of her clothes are still in this wardrobe. was the son's room, but uh, we won't go in there, because his favourite spot was the little parlour behind his office in the motel. Let's go down there. This young man, you had to feel sorry for him. After all, being dominated by an almost maniacal woman was enough to drive anyone to the extreme of... Uh, uh, well, let's go in. Well, 
Well, I suppose you'd call this his hideaway. His hobby, as you see, was taxidermy. Crow here, an owl there. Now, an important scene took place in this room. There was a private supper here. And, uh, oh, by the way, this picture has great significance because, uh, let's go along to cabin number one. I'll show you something there. Tied it up. The bathroom. Well, I cleaned all this up now. Big difference. You should have seen the blood. The whole, the whole place was. Well, it's, it's too horrible to describe. Dreadful. And I'll tell you, there's a very important clue was found here. Down there. Well, the murderer, you see, crept in here. Very slowly, of course, the shower was on, there was no sound. And uh, 